The COVID-19 pandemic has changed life for all of us. But even before this, we were already fighting an epidemic, the battle against chronic disease. And those with chronic diseases are at highest risk of contracting severe coronavirus infections. So how do we protect ourselves during these uncertain times? But more importantly, how do we view health? Welcome to the Glass Half Healthy Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Jonar, a board-certified physician in internal medicine and lifestyle medicine. In this podcast, I want to address the current crisis of chronic disease and to challenge conventional attitudes towards health. We'll be exploring these issues with thought-provoking guests to help redefine what health should mean for all of us. I hope to inspire you to take action towards a happier, thriving life because good health comes to those who expect it. Greetings, everyone. I am Dr. Jonar, and this is my podcast, The Glass Half Healthy. Thanks for tuning in. We have a great one for you today that I think you're going to enjoy. As I mentioned on social media, which, by the way, you can find links to in our show notes, and on the last episode, episode 10, my podcast ranked in the top 200 podcasts in the U.S. in health and fitness in its first week. So thanks for showing my podcast some love. You know, as my thank you in return... I'd love to connect with you. So I want you to write in to let me know if there are any health habits you are working on right now. If a prior episode spoke to you to inspire this change, specific topics you want to hear more about or any other questions you might have, please send them my way at drjonar at gmail.com. That's D-R-J-O-N-A-R at gmail.com. You can find that link in our show notes or you can direct message me on my social accounts, which again, you can find those links in our show notes for this episode. So let me know. Really looking forward to hearing from you all. Okay, I am excited to have back on the pod, Dr. Kadira Ali Huff, MD, MPH, FAAP, and diplomat of the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine. You may remember her from our launch series on Defining Health. She practices pediatrics in Washington, D.C., And with her lifestyle medicine certification, she emphasizes preventative medicine with all of her patients. But before we get to that, a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Glass Half Healthy podcast is brought to you by kale. Kale is considered a superfood as one of the most nutrient-dense plants in the world. At just 33 calories per one cup, this dark green leafy veggie has almost 3 grams of protein, 2.5 grams of fiber, with an amazing array of vitamins and minerals. So consider this your wake-up kale. Get it today at your nearest farmer's market or grocer, wherever fresh produce is sold. All right, back to the podcast. Today's episode is the future of health begins with our kids. With kids going back to school in the middle of this pandemic, one thing that is concerning is the high number of COVID cases As of today, August 21st, over 5.57 million cases here in the United States, and that those with chronic disease like obesity puts anyone, kids or adults, at higher risk of severe COVID infections. The following are shocking numbers. So according to the CDC National Center for Health Statistics, children and adolescents from the ages of 2 to 19 years old, the prevalence of obesity was 18.5% and affects about 13.7 million children and adolescents. Also, I referenced this in a previous episode, but according to the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, 72% of Americans are overweight or obese. 
Six in 10 Americans have one chronic disease. Four in 10 Americans have two or more chronic diseases. These chronic disease statistics are crazy. And all this comes down to our habits. So lifestyle changes are really the key to reversing the course of chronic disease, which is why as a physician and as a person, I am such a big proponent of lifestyle medicine. Simply put, lifestyle medicine gets to the root cause of disease with evidence-based approaches in lifestyle behavior, such as diet, sleep, exercise, social connections, stress, and avoiding risky behaviors to be able to treat, reverse, and prevent chronic disease. As an adult, we may be already behind the eight ball for treating or possibly reversing chronic disease, but for the future of health, which are our kids, we can help prevent chronic disease by starting these kids early and on the right foot to healthy living. But to accomplish this, the kids need role models to do it, and we adults as parents are in a position to practice what we preach, so the whole entire family can benefit. As soon as one person starts doing it, good habits, just like bad ones, become contagious in the house. And this is where my dear friend, Dr. Kadira Huff, comes in. She is doing exactly this through her current medical practice and a new venture called Sprouting Wellness to coach families along their journey towards adopting healthier lifestyles. During our talk, we get into her work and a wide variety of other topics like her master's in public health, where she focused on food systems and health disparities. We discuss social injustice and social inequalities and how those play a role into healthcare inequalities. From education to the justice system, there's multiple layers that influence healthcare outcomes, putting certain populations like the black community at higher risk, which increases their likelihood of heart disease, diabetes, and a slew of other common chronic diseases. But one of the silver linings about this pandemic is that it's created awareness, allowing us a space for a discussion, and it's not enough to just be aware, but to take action. So Dr. Kadira talks about what any one person can actually do to get involved. We even talk about whole food plant-based nutrition, what it means, busting some myths surrounding it, and helpful information on starting plant-based eating. I hope this talk helps you on your health journey and really hope you enjoy our discussion. So here she is, Dr. Kadira Huff. All right. Thank you for coming back on the show, Dr. Kadira. Now, you may remember her from last episode during the launch series on answering the question about health, but great to have you uh, back here again. So what's interesting about like our story is we ended up meeting at the American College of Lifestyle Medicine conference I'm in Orlando. And it actually turns out we have one mutual friend, right? I think so. Chandra? Chandra Singh? Exactly. She and I had, um, we worked together. That was my first job after college. Oh, I don't know. You guys worked together. I thought you met like in college. Oh, interesting. Okay. We actually, we did know each other from undergrad, just kind of casually, but then we got to know each other more personally when we were um, on an asthma program. Oh, Um, okay. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. So now we're all doctors (laughs) and you're a pediatrician, but you're also a lifestyle medicine physician, right? Certified physician. So I wanted to ask you, because we didn't talk about it last time during our episode, why did you decide on pediatrics? Really great question. And thank you so much, Dr. Jonar, for having me on again. Oh, of course. Um, You know, when you have your third year medical school rotations, you get a little taste of all the different specialties um, within medicine. 
And as soon as I set foot on the peds wards during third year of medical school, I just remember that day so clearly in terms of being happy. Being around children, even though obviously it wasn't uh, always the, the easiest circumstances, but just being able to be a part of their story and healing and getting better um, and just witnessing how resilient and joyful they were, even in really tough circumstances. It was just a beautiful and heartwarming um, experience. And that really carried over in every subsequent um, experience I had in Pete's during medical school. And as my training evolved and I decided on residency, having the opportunity to be work in the continuity clinics where essentially you're working as uh, a training doctor in primary care, that really just solidified that I had been, I, I chose the right path. I love the fact that we get to impact the full trajectory of a human being. That's amazing. And that's not mm. something to do in yes. much any other area of medicine, right? Right, right. And you really also have the opportunity to lay the groundwork for lifelong healthy habits, which obviously as a lifestyle medicine doctor, that is super exciting and, you know, fulfilling. And I think pediatrics also has a natural focus on preventive medicine as well. You know, we're pro-vaccination for the most part and really thinking about how can we inculcate these healthy habits and um, thinking about nutrition a lot versus in other fields of medicine. That all really spoke to me as well. And um, I think the last area that I really love about PEDS, one of the last, is that we really get to educate the whole family unit. Um, it's not really just about the child. A lot of the education is going to be directed to the parents. And so it's kind of you get a two for one deal in peds, which I love. And being a black woman physician, and I practice in a predominantly African American community. That's also been a very personal and heartening um, component of being a physician in terms of positive role modeling and seeing that face of excitement when I walk into a room to see, you know, to be a black lady doctor. That's exciting to a lot of my young patients. Yeah, no, for sure. That uh, inspiring, right? So, you know, I know you mentioned the lifestyle medicine aspect. So why lifestyle medicine as a, com you know, big component in all of this? Lifestyle medicine is interesting. I feel like once I discovered the field of lifestyle medicine, only two years ago, actually, it felt like I'd found my people. Um, right. And sorry, also too, sorry to interrupt you, but I wanted to ask you actually, what is lifestyle medicine? You know, that I think we, you know, we're, we're both certified. So we're, you know, very speaking well. Lingo. Yeah, speaking the lingo, exactly. So for those that don't know it out there that are listening to this, what is lifestyle medicine? Perfect. Thank you for asking. So lifestyle medicine is a specialty in medicine that focuses on using evidence-based lifestyle habits to prevent treat, and even reverse um, chronic diseases that we know through a lot of research are uh, lifestyle related. And so there's an emphasis on a handful of healthy habits um, that have been backed up by evidence to be integral to disease prevention. So those healthy habits are eating a whole food plant-based diet, um, being physically active, uh, managing our stress, how do we deal with difficult situations in our lives, avoiding risky substance use, so um, moderate or no alcohol use, avoiding tobacco, uh, making sure we're being mindful about how much sleep we're getting um, in terms of quality and quantity. And then also what I love, one of the most important things that I love is the emphasis on social connection and having a sense of purpose and meaning in our lives. 
and um, that being really key in terms of our holistic picture of health. So lifestyle medicine is really um, broadly about putting the core lifestyle habits on a pedestal and making how we approach health be an extension of that instead of uh-huh. starting off with medications or other interventions we're like have we really delved into the role of lifestyle in whatever condition we are discussing in the clinic and uh-huh. i love that because at this point in time we know healthcare is a billion trillion dollar industry and um, a lot of that is because of the emphasis on pharmaceuticals and other interventions and not enough emphasis in terms of what are we putting into our bodies? How are we moving our bodies and right. all these aspects of lifestyle that are really at the core of um, maintaining and also achieving health if, if problems have, have come about. Wow. Very, uh, very thorough explanation and definition. Thank you. <laughs> so, but what, so, you know, tying this back to pediatrics, why, why is that important for children and, you know, for the families and, you know, for you? It's huge. Um, I would say like going upstream, I am passionate about lifestyle medicine because I've seen it work in my personal life. During residency, I had gained a lot of weight, actually. And that was, I refer to it as the anti-lifestyle that I was living you know, <laughs> during residency. It's like peak stress. Right. You're not sleeping well. Right. Definitely not enough. Um, your body hormones are off, you're eating at odd times of the day. Um, I wasn't moving my body regularly. And I was really, um, I had fallen prey to the standard American diet, quote unquote, high fat, high sugar, high salt, just grabbing what was around to, I think, pacify a lot of those stressed out feelings. And so as I graduated residency, I was like, wow, uh, I soon got pregnant. And I'm like, whoa, this is, I need to, I need to really delve into how can I reverse this ship? Because I didn't like where things were going. And as a doctor, you know what's at stake once you see the scale creeping up and my blood pressure was creeping up. And I'm like, mm-mm, this is, <laughs> this is not how this is going to go. No, happen. no. Yeah, exactly. And so as I entered attendinghood and had a lot more routine in my schedule, I really started to be more mindful about each of these areas of lifestyle medicine, even before I knew about the field itself. And so becoming more active and becoming more whole food plant-based and managing my stress, I found that the weight easily fell off, had more energy. I was able to show up in early motherhood in a, in a much um, more present and grounded way. And it helped me to be more mindful in terms of what are the habits that I want to proactively instill in my own child, right? And mm. so that loops it back to pediatrics where right. children are such a beautiful population to apply lifestyle medicine because again, they have the advantage of prevention, right? Like it's right. not even for them about having to reverse anything for the most part. Like we can instill these habits now so they get to reap the rewards of that for their whole life and not have to be on this hamster wheel of, you know, um, hypertension and prediabetes and diabetes and obesity yeah. and right. all that. Like we can prevent, which is amazing. And also, um, again, thinking about the family unit and how, again, the children aren't the only ones who stand to gain from these conversations that I have in clinic. It's the whole family. Um, And so as I see the trend of chronic disease in in kids too, this becomes even more imperative and timely that the message is expanded um, because children themselves, you know, we we're having, I diagnose hypertension regularly and, prediabetes, diabetes regularly. 
Um, so children are not immune to these diseases of civilization, quote unquote. Right. And, you know, I think that, you know, you highlighted something beautiful about that because they are young. So prevention is, is, you know, totally available to them because they don't have any of these diseases starting out. But I think like comparatively to older population, you know, like adults and even like the elderly, there's these habits that they form their whole life that are difficult to break. Whereas with kids, you don't really have to deal with that per se. right? Right. So I think that, you know, instilling it on in an early part of their lives is super important. So that's great that you're doing that. All right, definitely. I am. And um, it's exciting. It's definitely exciting. And just the ability to impact kind of the multi-generational unit is is awesome. And that's really key in any behavior change that you're seeking in kids. You have right. to have their, their trusted adults on board too. <laughs> right, exactly. So, you know, I also saw that you have a master's in public health. Right. And so your focus is on food systems and health disparities, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about that. It's very interesting. Yeah. So it kind of, the story starts in college. Um, I had a mentor who was a family physician and she and I did a summer study, um, like a research study assistantship to learn all about social determinants of health. This was my first exposure to the idea that health does not happen in a vacuum. You know, there Mm -hmm. are many, many, many layers of societal factors and forces that help to create the health of an individual. Um, And by that, I mean thinking about our built environment, thinking about policy, thinking about education, thinking about the foodscape. All of these different layers of impact um, help to create health, whether for good or for bad in some cases. And so um, with that kind of as a lens, as I approached going into medical school where Primarily, we're working on an individual level. I knew I also wanted to maintain um, an eye on the broader picture and recognizing that there were so many ways that we can impact health on a community or state or national level through policy and other interventions that um, could be just as effective or even more so effective than the individual um, patient-doctor relationship. And so that's what made me want to go into um, get my master of public health and specifically focusing on food. Um, I'd always had a strong interest in nutrition and the impact of food on creating health. Um, my parents were actually vegan slash vegetarian um, throughout my childhood. And so really yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they, what, what was their reason behind it? Was it more like, um, uh, you know, for the environment or animal rights or was it more of a religious or, you know, ethnic type of uh, reason? Very good question. Um, So they were very active in the civil rights and black liberation movements in the 70s. Um, They met Mm -hmm. at Howard University here in DC. Oh, they did? Okay. Yeah. And so there was just, that was such a time of dynamic questioning and querying the status quo. Um, And that went from everything from policy to education to even food and what we choose to put into our bodies and how that can be a political act of uh, reclaiming um, our autonomy. And so many Black folks at the time had started to get back into 
um, whole food plant-based eating as kind of an extension of our heritage of people of African descent, which mm. is a very, um, if you look at a lot of traditional diets um, right. throughout the continent of Africa, you'll see a pretty strong emphasis on, on plant-based foods. And uh, so I think for my parents, it was part cultural and also definitely a huge part of uh, health uh, mm. to make that decision. And so Very cool. I did not know that. Yeah, it's really cool. It was definitely really cool. And it's one of the greatest gifts that I appreciate that my parents passed on. So I've always been fascinated by food and thinking about how, you know, that uh, that historical gift that they gave me, I know has set me up in certain ways that I see many peers and classmates and, you know, neighbors from when I was growing up didn't have that same um, perspective or, or gift. Um, so... You know, going back to, um, you know, your, your focus on public health, I wanted to address some of these issues, uh, you know, with you. So I'm not black, but mm-hmm. what has been going on for many years, but especially over the past several months and weeks with George Floyd's murder and, you know, the subsequent protests for social injustice, I myself have been feeling compelled to, to say something or do something, um, but I end up feeling kind of paralyzed, right? I don't know what to do, but, and then I thought about it more. Maybe what I just need to do is listen, right? Listen to the African-American community, listen to people like you who are, you know, a strong advocate for, um, you know, the black community. So I wanted to hear it from you, uh, you know, how social injustice and social inequality plays a role in health and the health disparities that we often see amongst the the African-American community? Thank you for asking that, Dr. Jonah. I think that's a fantastic question. It's complicated. I would say um, just very briefly that we did not get to this place overnight. And one one of the aspects of the conversation about health disparities that often frustrates me, I think, is that we forget the context. And that is so important with this discussion because, as I said before, recognizing the social determinants of health, we know health does not emerge overnight and it does Mm -hmm. not exist in a vacuum. Um, And so thinking about the history of Black Americans, slavery, the first slaves were brought over in 1619 and we had several hundreds of years of slavery. Um, The slaves were officially freed, 1865. Um, And then we had another hundred years of Jim Crow thinking about segregation, which was only officially ended in the mid 1960s. So that Mm -hmm. was over 50 years ago that we have even had the illusion of an equal playing field in terms of black America versus um, the predominant culture. And so 50 years in the light of hundreds of years is just really a a drop in the bucket um, when you think about how entrenched different systems of, um, you know, racism, discrimination, and even still today, segregation exists. So I would just say that that's really important to keep in mind, um, that things have definitely been separate for a long, long time in this country, separate and unequal, and unequal in terms of the care that we get in the healthcare system, how pervasive implicit bias is, and um, sense of prejudice amongst healthcare providers towards uh, patients potentially. And with implicit bias, it's not, it's not something that's conscious a lot of times. This is just like that internalized sense of difference and that can manifest in different treatment. Um, thinking about uh, healthcare access, 
um, and how there are different rates of insurance and also different levels of access in communities to high quality medical care. Um, so that's just kind of from like the healthcare um, direct provision perspective, but then kind of going farther, if you think about concentric circles of, of influence and health, our education, our uh, food access, all of these different layers add on to create the health disparities that we see today. And then the last component, which is, again, very unique to um, the Black perspective as, as Americans, there is that chronic exposure to racism um, and stress that really, and we have evidence to back this up, this erodes our health. Um, being exposed to experiences of racism and discrimination can increase our likelihood of um, heart disease, hypertension, diabetes, depression, anxiety. These are all things that have been supported by the research. And so I think that as this discussion continues, it's important to maintain that context and to also think about the very real ways um, that health of Black Americans has been impacted um, by history and by systems and also experiences of racism and discrimination. So there are a lot of different levels. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a great answer. I mean, it's, it seems like it's very complex and it's built up over many, many years. I mean, centuries, if, if you even want to go all the way back. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think the good thing that's coming out of this is discussion, you know, awareness of all these things that are taking place. So, what can any one person do or like our society as a whole to mm -hmm. help mitigate some of these, these disparities, whether you're talking about social injustice or even, you know, health disparities, what, what can we do? That's a good question. And I think that depending on what your particular um, interest is, there's something that can be done. Uh, one book I will recommend, and it's not specific to health disparities, but mm -hmm. in general, how mm -hmm. to be anti-racist. And I like, this is by Ibram Kendi. I'm sure most folks have I heard just, of it. It's point. interesting you just brought that up. I just saw him last night. He was on uh, the Colbert uh, show. Oh, I'll have to check yeah, it out. Yeah, and he, he, that's so fun. Oh, my gosh, that's crazy. So, anyways, tell me about this book. I, I was interested by, you know, what he was, he was talking about it. So, tell us more. So, it's a, it's a fantastic book. Um, it's very, very thought-provoking, and everybody is under examination, whether you're Black, White, Asian, Hispanic. Everybody is pushed to examine their role in racism and their role in anti-racism, which is the flip side of um, being racist. And so one of the central premises of the book is essentially there is no neutral ground um, in this world of racism and anti-racism. So to be not racist really isn't where we are striving to be. It's to be anti-racist, which is essentially um, proactively denying the thought that there are any differences in terms of um, worth or value between the races. We are all equal. We all have inherent worth. Um, and when you see differences in races, that should be applied to individuals, not to the group as a whole, and certainly not to further any uh, rhetoric that this is kind of um, uh, indicative of, of, oh, that race is this way or that race is the other way and one being better or worse than the other. So it's based on this radical concept that we're all equal and um, trying to just throw out this notion of white supremacy and a racial hierarchy. And as by virtue of that, he gets to thinking about um, interpersonal racism and also how ideas lead into policies. And so ultimately when we're talking about 
um, health disparities and what can we do, it's thinking about policies and how they can manifest in racist or anti-racist ways. And uh, so it's, it's a great book. There's a lot to unpack. And so I would highly recommend it. Yeah. Oh, definitely check that out for sure. Totally. So, but to briefly answer your question, I think everybody has their specific niches or interests. So Mm -hmm. if you're an education person thinking about how we can support our local education systems to have more equal resources between schools, um, if food is an issue, maybe getting involved in food justice work in your community. Um, And so there's, there's work to be done in pretty much every facet and area of our society, depending on what your specific um, interest is. And then one other key aspect outside of these layers and social determinants, I would say, is thinking about diversity in the healthcare workforce is huge. Hmm. And what we see is that many providers of color tend to work in communities that mirror their ethnic identity. And Hmm. so that's just kind of how the, the... things fall out. And so uh, having a more diverse workforce will ensure that we have providers that reflect communities that they work in. Not that it always has to be um, that way, but that's huge because at this point in time, you know, 2% of practicing physicians are black women, for example, and that's much too low. Um, So that's huge thinking about mentorship, thinking about even going upstream to different educational systems and why some some kids tend to look more competitive on paper than others. Um, That sets them up to get accepted into medical school a lot easier Um, and even prejudice in the medical school counseling. So there's a lot of different levels. And I would just say, like, think about what your passion is and look into opportunities on the local level to begin with that have a a social justice slant. Um, Because I think that, like you said, there's so much beautiful movement happening and a lot of community-based conversations. I think more and more, there are going to be more obvious uh, ways to get involved. Right. Well, I think that's beautifully put because, you know, like for myself, like I kind of felt paralyzed, but like you were saying, depending on what your niche and passion is, focus on that, focus on the things, you know, can affect, which is your community, um, your family, friends. So yeah, I mean, I think that's like a very important point to to emphasize. And so for you, I know that you're big on the whole food Mm -hmm. plant-based mission for people, and it's important to everyone, but especially for the African-American community. So how can those who have never eaten that way uh, before do it if they're interested? And and I guess the thing too, I wanted to ask you is, do you have to commit all the way? Do you have to just drop all meat and, you know, be become completely 100% whole food plant-based? That's a great question. And I feel like um, that terminology is so key here. And that is why I actually prefer the either plant-forward or plant-based term versus right. vegan. I feel like vegan uh, can be a little bit polarizing to some folks, especially sure. who are new um, to plant-based eating. And so thinking about what are we trying to encourage with our plants and say, hey, we're trying to put this as the basis of our plate, plant-based, or we're trying to push plants forward as maybe like the first thing that we're reaching for, plant forward. So um, with that being said, it does not have to be all or nothing. And I think for most of us, it's a little bit of a journey um, to get to full-on whole food plant-based eating. And so I would say start small and Start with just a a swap, Um, looking at what you already like to eat, grains or 
think about your, your family's menu. And I, a lot of times people, when they're really putting their plant-based goggles on, they see that, hey, I already have a couple meals on my like rotation that are naturally meat-free or could easily be made meat-free and start there. Um, and be thoughtful in terms of how can I start to slowly increase the number of um, meatless meals versus the ones that contain meat. And um, thinking about those swaps, I like uh, there are a lot of really cool, easy swaps to be made for, for instance, like making um, when you're making pasta sauce instead of the beef, you can do uh, sauteed lentils or right. things into it. So there are a lot of like very familiar ways that you can make foods that you already enjoy, but just like leave the meat on the side and add something that has additional fiber or, um, you know, a vegetable into it. So you can increase the health quotient um, pretty easily. Um, but I would say like, you don't have to go all or nothing. And I would say for long-term success, start small and build from there. Um, and just recognize that this food industry has been created for us to become almost dependent on these high sugar, high fat, high salt um, foods. This is the food industry. It's a business, right? And like they're there to sell products and there are huge teams researching like how they can create the right balance of all these different um, intoxicating <laughs> flavors, if you will. Yeah. Really, like, they're addictive. It's addictive. addictive. And like they stimulate us to want to eat more. Um, so I say that to say, don't feel badly if you feel the whisper of those processed foods while you're on your health journey, because that's how they're made and they're doing their job by you feeling that way. Right. Um, so um, be kind and, and gracious with yourself and just know it's, it's a journey. Okay. Yeah. So how about for people who might say, well, Dr. Kadir, I've been eating uh, this way all my life. I do have health issues and I want to live healthier, but really it's just so hard to give up these foods I've been eating and used to eating for a long time. What would you say to those people? Yeah, I would say I feel you and um, I've definitely, I've been there, but I would say there's something called a SMART goal where you can think about what is one small actionable um, change that you can make. It can be, okay, if sugar is your big vice um, in terms of nutrition, instead of having a dessert every night, maybe plan in advance to say, I'm going to have dessert twice this week. Okay, so that could be like an initial small goal to hold yourself accountable to. And then from there, once you're able to reduce your number of desserts, then maybe the next step can be, I'm going to think about maybe a healthful swap for desserts. So instead of ice cream, maybe I'll try nice cream, which is frozen bananas blended um, or in a food processor. You can add um, nut butter. You can add. I like that term, nice cream. Yeah, yeah, it's delicious. You make it almost every week at home. Um, all sorts of berries. It can be kind of like a, a soft serve consistency. So that can be like the next step that you take after you've reduced the number of desserts per week. So I would say set goals. Like there's something very, very key about writing something down, being specific about it, having it be something that you can measure or a la the SMART goal. And this going slowly from there. Um, the other thing a lot of people find helpful is having an accountability buddy, maybe a family member or a partner, um, a coworker, someone who's also trying to work towards some of these same nutritional goals and share your goal with them and they can share theirs with you and you all can help to be on this journey together. Um, because I will say folks are a lot more successful when they're not trying to go it alone. 
Um, and I know in the light of the pandemic, there are a lot more cool online resources and uh, summits and webinars happening where folks can start to find an online community of like-minded folks who are trying to make some of these nutritional changes. So I would say seek that online support out too. Okay, great. And then I guess because we're running out of time, I'm going to ask you one last question um, or two last questions. One is, so you often hear this, uh, you know, whole food plant-based or even like vegan diet might be a privileged diet and that it's too expensive. So what are your thoughts on that? What would you tell people that might think that way or that it's too expensive to eat healthier? I would say it can be expensive, but it certainly does not have to be. And I would say the less expensive you're able to make this whole food plant-based diet, probably you're doing it the better way. Because what I find is when I work, walk through the grocery store, the plant-based items that cost the most are the processed ones. They're the Mm. sausages and the cheese Mm -hmm. and the yogurts and things that have been made in some sort of processing plant and aren't coming directly out of the ground um, and being sold in their whole form. So I would say it's definitely possible to do this uh, without a ton of money. And it would definitely require moving towards the simpler forms of things, which are going to be the most nutritious. They're going to be the most um, fulfilling. Thinking about brown rice, thinking about beans, whether canned or dried, thinking about um, whole vegetables or frozen vegetables and fruits. So just keeping things simple goes a long, long way in terms of health benefits and also cutting expense. So I would say, like, definitely there are a ton of new plant-based products coming on the market every day because this market is exploding. There's a lot more on consumer interest. But I would say you don't have to buy those products, and you probably shouldn't more times than not. It's nice to have a treat from time to time. We do a little vegan sausage here and there. It's, It's a nice change of pace. However, you don't want to be eating those processed products all the time if you can avoid it. Um, but I will say one thing that they can be a stepping stone for a lot of people who are new to plant-based eating, who want to see some familiarity in terms of what's in their plate. Um, but you don't want to get stuck in that kind of processed plant-based world for too, too long. Right. I mean, that's where the name whole food comes from, right? So we want to move away from the, the process to the, to the unprocessed, wholesome foods. Exactly. You were just saying. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. So I think uh, meal planning is another key that can help with um, being thoughtful in terms of like what you're going to serve in batch cooking and buying things in in bulk if you're able to um, and keeping it simple. Great. And so where can people find you online? Yeah, so I'm pretty active on Instagram. I'm at Kadira Huff MD um, on Instagram. And then I also have a lifestyle medicine virtual wellness practice that i'll be launching soon oh Um, yay congrats thank you spouting wellness md is the instagram account so that one isn't as active at this moment as kadira huff but soon to be (laughs) okay so launching soon yes awesome i we're looking forward to that and thank you so much for coming on the show this has been fantastic um, I hope to have you again on the show sometime soon in the near future if you, you can fit in the time with your busy schedule and taking care of your kids. Thank you so much, <laughs> Dr. Jonah. I've had a great time and congratulations on your podcast. Thank you so much. Okay, listeners, um, give Dr. Kadir a shout out on Instagram and we'll see you soon. Take care. So what did you think? How awesome is Dr. Kadir Hoff? As she mentioned, only 2% of practicing physicians 
are Black women. So Dr. Kadira Hoff is truly a positive role model for the African-American community and the future generation of doctors. I hope that this discussion inspires you to take action in your own health, as well as in the fight for social justice and equality for everyone. Please hit up Dr. Kadira Hoff on her socials to let her know what you thought about this talk. You can find those links in our show notes. I'm happy she was able to be a part of this and I'm very happy you tuned in to hear her. So if you like what you heard, please download, subscribe, listen, rate, and review my podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and share it with your family, friends, and online. Thanks again to the wonderful and smart Amelia Liu, my intern, to Twinsy for the production help, and to Stock Sounds for the music. And lastly, to you. Thank you again for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode with Dr. Siri Chan Khalsa, an internal medicine and integrative medicine doctor whose current work involves supporting physicians to better understand the roots of healing through Ayurveda and specifically plant-based nutrition. Remember, your state of health starts with your state of mind. So till next time, enjoy the process, my friends. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice, so please talk to your primary physician for that. In addition, the views and opinions expressed by me are my own and not that of my former, current, or future employer. This also applies to my guests. Finally, we do our best to make every effort to relay correct information. We do not guarantee its accuracy. Thank you for listening.